0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. That's how I introduce myself to my own church, and that's I usually get everybody's attention in Sunday school. I teach Bible doctrine in Sunday school. My other man, Randy Freeman, teaches the Book of Romans, and he is going through it very slowly. It took me three years to go through the Book of Revelation up to chapter 20, uh, and I've done that several times. I've taught Bible survey on the book of Revelation. I I do a a cassette. I was joking about being dated here. But about 15, 20 years ago, I did a four-cassette series and four messages lasting an hour each of the book of Revelation. So I've spent almost a quarter of my ministry in the book of Revelation. And that's not because I wanted to do that. I was teaching other books, but it was because... My people wanted to hear the book of Revelation every so many years. So maybe I'd go seven, eight years, and they'd want to hear the book of Revelation again. And churches change, and new people come. And so I'm just glad to be with you. Uh, let's start off with a word of prayer this morning. Father God, I, I ask your blessing on this group. Father, I ask that I would make the second coming of Christ the ten-nation confederation from the book of revelation, Father, the mystery Babylon religious system that controls Antichrist, a second coming of Christ, the millennium, that I would make this as simple as I can, Father, for people. I know, Lord God, I can get off track, and I pray I won't, but I pray that people really comprehend what you want them to understand today. Give us a fire, Father, that just makes us anxious to be everything we should be, for the rapture of the church, but to honor you, Father. I pray this all now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. You know, just by way of review, I want to read Daniel 9.27, and we'll go into the book of Revelation about the ten nations. But I wanted to bring this passage together with Matthew 24 a little bit, because Matthew 24 is laid out this way. You have birth pangs, which we're seeing birth pangs today. Then you have the tribulation from verse 9 down to verse 14. Then you have the great tribulation mentioned in verse 15 with various details added to that time all the way down to Matthew 24, 29 through 30 where Christ is coming back. And the illuminaries are darkened, okay? We've seen that both From the book of Acts, Joel chapter 2 has been mentioned just off the top. Acts chapter 2, using Joel chapter 2. Uh, We have the seals, the sixth seal, saying the same thing that Matthew says about the second coming of Christ. So, now I just want to read this one week of years. Verse 27 of Daniel 9. And I'm just adding this in. And he... The prince that came out of the Roman Empire, because the Roman Empire was divided into two legs after Titus invaded Jerusalem in 70 AD and sent the Jews into captivity. It says this, he, wait a minute, Titus never made this agreement, so it's somebody in the future out of the revived Roman Empire. That's what most Bible scholars believe. He, and we believe this is Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, meaning the temple has to be rebuilt. There is no temple right now. And on the wings of abomination, which is mentioned here in in, uh, Matthew 24, will come one who makes desolate, even unto a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about a future covenant that this world leader will make with Israel for seven years. The temple will be rebuilt. He will allow sacrifice and offerings until he does what? He stands in the temple of God, then he sits in the temple of God, and that starts what we call the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. And the first three and a half years is a period of peace, a period where things are starting to crumble a little bit. But there's a great evangelistic campaign carried on by the 144,000 witnesses of Revelation 7. I'm just adding that to try and bring some detail into Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is a perfect outline. Birth pangs, tribulation, great tribulation, second coming of Christ. You have the perfect outline that fits in with the book of Daniel and then fits in with the book of Revelation. Especially Revelation as it deals with the last three and a half years which is really the emphasis of the book of Revelation. Now, I'd like you to turn, and you don't have to, it's in your notes, if you have your notes in front of you, to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. And I kind of wished I would have put this in a different order, but it's all right. I'm going to mention them here, and I'll also mention the religious system, but we won't get to the religious system yet that is dominating the end times. Revelation 17, verses 12 through 14. The ten horns which you saw, both out of Daniel, chapter 11, or at chapter 7, I should say, and here. It says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. They're part of what we call the revived Roman Empire. They exist at that time and in the, in the future day right now. Rome has never left us in a sense, according to Daniel 9. But they receive authority as kings With the beast for one hour, a short period of time, they rise. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb. And the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And that's us, beloved. We're coming back with him in Revelation 19. So just to set the stage... We know from Daniel that he has to bring them into subjection by pulling up or rooting three of the horns of those ten horns. And the rest of them fall in line, and they have one purpose, to give their power to the beast, the Antichrist himself. Revelation 17, uh, 16 says this. It's also in your notes. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast will hate the harlot, now the harlot is the false religious system which we will get to, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Chapter 17 and chapter 18, we'll discuss it more. For God has put it into their hearts. God is in perfect control. He's sovereign. He put it into their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the word of God will be fulfilled. Now, we know that Satan is in control in the sense that he's the ruler and he's the prince of this world, according to the book of John. And there's the satanic trinity. There's Satan, there's the beast, and there's the false prophet. It's all an imitation of of God and his work in the world as we look at the triunity of God or the trinity. How is God going to counteract their power? In Revelation 13, it's clear that the Antichrist has the false prophet, kind of like the Holy Spirit, giving empowerment to him. And there's the image of the beast, and there's the mark of the beast, and all these things are going to happen during the great tribulation. They will receive this mark. They won't be able to buy and sell unless they have this mark on their hand or in their forehead. Okay, so that, that's their power. They have signs and wonders. They're all false, but they demonstrate the power that God allows them to have to carry out his purpose. So how is he going to counteract them? Now, this is all about the second three and a half years of the tribulation. I didn't put the seals, trumpets, vials on that chart. I should have. It would have made it a little bit easier to see at the end of the sixth seal, you have the second coming of Christ. At the end of the trumpets, you have the second coming of Christ. At the end of the vials, you have the second coming of Christ. Now, these two witnesses that I'm going to talk about are going to counteract the false prophet and the Antichrist. So turn to Revelation 11. We'll get back to Revelation 17, but I want to deal with this first of all, these two witnesses. And let's just read about them, okay? And I, this is not in your notes, so if you want to take a note about these two witnesses, put down a Revelation 11, 1 through 7, okay? Very important. Let's read it. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said to me, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. So there are still true worshipers even during the time of the beginning of the Great Tribulation. There will always be believers even in the Great Tribulation. And it says here that leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given over the nations for 42 months Forty-two months is three and one-half years. Great tribulation, right? So these two witnesses come along that are actually very similar to the two witnesses in the book of Zechariah during the time of Ezra. Okay, the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel and Jeshua were two olive trees and two lampstands. We have a similar picture here in the end times about these two witnesses. I will grant authority, it says, to my two witnesses in verse 3, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, three and a half years. In sackcloth, they are in mourning for what's happening to the world. They are grieved about the Antichrist, him sitting in the temple of God, deceiving the world the way he is, along with the false prophet. These are two olive trees and two lampstands. Olive trees were where you get olive oil from. Olive oil is essential to the lamps. So here are these two witnesses that have a picture of them, I believe, being anointed supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. And also, they are lampstands. Their light is shining to the world in opposition to the false prophet and the Antichrist himself. And I said yesterday, who are you going to choose? If you live during that time, who are you going to believe? You're going to believe Antichrist, the false prophet, or these two witnesses? So there are two witnesses they prophesied during that time, and we know the time they prophesied, it's not the first three and a half years, because we'll find out they are going to die. And it says this, verse 4. These are two olive trees and two lampstands. They stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. That's exactly what Elijah, Elijah the prophet did when Ahab sent men to arrest him. They were consumed by fire. The second time they're consumed by fire when he said another 50. And then the third 50 says, please, don't do anything. We know what you've done. We know the power of God. please. Go and talk with Ahab. It's kind of like you see this example from the Old Testament, and that's what's going to happen here. This fire devours their enemies. Nobody can harm them. Verse 5, so if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have the power to shut the sky up. Elijah again, he shut the sky up for three and one-half years during uh, King Ahab's wicked reign over the ten tribes of Israel. Okay, the beast, or let me me say this, let me just read this more clearly here. When it says that, it says they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who did that? Moses in the Old Testament. During the plagues. That's the first plague he actually did. And then it says in verse 6 at the end, and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast, the false, the Antichrist, that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Sodom and Egypt being compared to Jerusalem where the Lord was crucified. And you think of Sodom, and you know what that's connected with, and you think of Egypt as being connected with bondage and enslavement. But that's what Jerusalem will be because of Antichrist. That's the way it's described in the Word of God. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and one-half days. Why? Their ministry was three and one-half years, 1260 days. And so at the end of that three-and-a-half-year period which we call the Great Tribulation, they die. And they're put in the streets of Jerusalem for three and one-half days. And the whole world's going to see it. That could not have been possible except for modern satellite technology. For all the world to see their bodies being displayed at the end of their three and a half years when they are allowed to be killed and you just, you just listen to this stuff and you realize this is literal. This is not symbolic. We're not trying to write anything away. It says, they will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb at the end of verse 9. And it says, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another like Christmas. Because the two prophets who tormented those who dwell on the earth, they weren't witnessing to them. They were telling them the truth. Because they were standing against evil. And the world doesn't like the truth. It just doesn't like it. So, you know what? This coincides with the second coming of Christ, doesn't it? The witnesses, the 144,000 were in the period of peace and safety, which was not so perfect and not so safe. But they were in that period, and they witnessed, and there was a great outpouring of the Spirit of God upon all flesh. We know that from Revelation chapter seven. Now the two witnesses come on the scene competing with antichrist who sat in the temple of God. They're competing with him and, and the world hates the two witnesses. That's why the world doesn't like us. We represent Christ. Don't think you're gonna be loved by this world. America has been very moral and very religious. But how many people truly are saved out of religion. Most of our major denominations have departed from the Lord. They don't believe that Jesus Christ was God. Most of the time they believe he might have been a prophet like Muhammad. Uh, they, They make him a man who is an example that we should follow his example. And they call the golden rule the gospel. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We have really departed. But here today we're not because we're still believing what the word of God has to say. So Guess what's going to happen to them? The world's going to be rejoicing. They're partying. It's like Christmas to them. Christmas in the association with two men that had so much power and their message was so powerful, they tormented the earth. What does it say about them? After that three and a half days in verse 11, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear came upon those who were watching them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here! And then they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and that great earthquake is in the seals, and it seems to be in the trumpets, it seems to be in the vials. Is it three different earthquakes, or it's the same earthquake giving us timing for the seals, the trumpets, and the vials? They go into heaven. A great earthquake happens. A tenth of the city fell. That means a tenth of Jerusalem. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. And the third woe is associated with the last trumpet where the dead will be judged. Now, I'm going to read this to you. It's not in my notes. But I'm going to read Daniel 12, 1 and 2. If you want to write it down right now, you can. Daniel 12, 1 and 2. And the reason I'm going to read it is because this is very important that you understand. We are raised because we're part of the church. When the rapture comes, we go up because God's done with his church. And what is he going to do? In the book of Revelation, he's going to deal with Israel again. That's what Matthew 24 and 24 is about. Or 25, I should say. The Jews should have done... This evangelizing the Gentiles in the Old Testament, but they will during the tribulation period. What's going to happen? I commented on. I'm going to read it to you. Daniel 12, 1 and two. Now at that time, the time of the Antichrist, the time of the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll get into at the end of Daniel eleven, uh, eventually, the Great Prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress. Such as never occurred since there was a nation until this time. Not the flood, not Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew 24, it says those days were so different in judgment and wrath and everything compared to any other time in human history that we're talking about the same period of time here. This is the time called the time of Jacob's trouble. A time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Rescued by the second coming of Christ. But what happens to those who have fallen asleep in the Old Testament? Because they were promised a kingdom. Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's what's going to happen to the Jewish people at the second coming of Christ. We need to understand how this all fits together. God is done with the church, the rapture comes. When God is done with Israel and they finally turn to their Messiah, guess what? All Old Testament Jews that expected him to come and be a conquering king, they will enter into that kingdom. I hope that's understandable. Because I know this can get very difficult. I just want you to understand... That if you read it and study it, as chapter 1 says of the book of Revelation, you will get it. I am so thankful I've taught it for years. But even the people I've taught it to can't remember everything. God gives pastor teachers and teachers in Sunday school to help us grow. We have to work very much at studying the word of God to show ourselves approval. So we will rightly divide the word of truth and we won't be ashamed. Our people are destroyed today for lack of knowledge. I've said that before, and that's something we as pastors have to try and change. I have been a discipler. I've tried to work with individuals within the church to disciple them in the area of their Christian walk and in the area of the end times. And I'm thankful for some of those men going on with the Lord, going to school and so on. But sometimes we have to see, like Jesus saw the disciples, we have to see those that have the potential to go on in ministry, either to be missionaries or to be pastor teachers. And we have to help them grow, to prepare them maybe to go on to higher education. And some, I've found, are self-taught. They never go to school but they are self-taught and they know the truth and they can tell you the truth and be accurate even though they've never gone to school. It's amazing what God will do when he calls somebody. So many people in foreign lands have no education and they're pastor teachers. I don't want to get off, but the passion is here for the truth that's in the word of God concerning what we're talking about here. Thank God for the two witnesses They will have a purpose. They will die just at the end of the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ. They will be resurrected, and the world will fear. But so many people will be so hard-hearted, they'll say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. I've already shared that. There'll be people that will never repent. They'll be so angry with God. And I've said goodbye to some of those people. They think sometimes that if you're a pastor, you can go in to talk to somebody in a hospital bed, And you can wave a magic wand over them and they'll trust in Christ. No, you know what? They don't know me. They know you. If you know the Lord and you're trying to speak to them about Christ and they know you love them, it might open their heart even when they're embittered. But boy, unbelievers are hard. And even in the book of Revelation, after seeing all the proof and all the judgment, all the trumpets and vials and seven thunders, they still don't believe. And there'll be massive rebellion in the millennium that we'll talk about later on. So let's move on. There's something else that happens in the Great Tribulation we want to talk about before we get to the mystery religion system of the end times. And we want to talk about Michael, who is so strong but not as strong as Satan. In the book of Jude, when they're discussing the body of Moses, and there's a controversy over the body of Moses It says that the archangel Michael would not even rebuke Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. The archangel Michael is lesser than Satan. Satan is the greatest creature God ever made. And we also need to understand that. But in the tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation, there's a war in heaven. Absolute war in heaven. And I didn't put all these passages because there's so much that would have had to been copied for you, I felt since we're in the book of Revelation, most of the time you could just turn there. So turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I said, there's a war in heaven. Satan's going to ca- be cast out. And you said, he's not cast out yet? Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. A future aspect of Satan being kicked out of heaven. He, in the book of Job, he had access. He goes up with the sons of God. He has communication with God. And he attacks Job. We all know the story about that. On two occasions, he says, just take everything away from him. And Job will curse you. He doesn't. Uh, okay, smite him. Just affect him with illness and he'll curse you. He does not curse him. Uh, This this is something that Satan has free access to God. He's always had it, but he won't always have it. He won't always be the prince of this world or the ruler of this world, according to the gospel of John. He'll be thrown down. So look at verse 7 through 9 of Revelation 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, that is Satan. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old from the book of Genesis, who's called the devil. That's diabolos. That's gossiper, slanderer. By the way, it's used to believers. We're not to gossip because we'll be like him. And Satan, who is our adversary, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels... We're thrown down with him. And what's the time of all this? He's only got a short period of time to unleash his wrath. The trumpets, vials, the seven thunders are being poured out on the earth by God. He's got a short time. And it says he's going after the woman who was supposed to flee, right? In Matthew 24, when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, they're to flee from Judea into the mountains. Well, guess what happens? They, they flee, all right, and it says, verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, and the woman in this passage goes all the way back to verse 1 and verse 2 that gives birth to the child, Christ himself. Who's the woman? It's Israel, and this vision is given to Joseph in the Old Testament in chapter, I believe it's chapter 37, if I'm not mistaken, but There are 12 stars associated with this woman. She's the nation of Israel. What does she do? Uh, She flees into the wilderness because she's the one that gave birth to the male child. Also in verse 13. But two wings of an eagle, a great eagle, were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness, just like Matthew says in chapter 24, to a place where she was nourished for time, one, times, two... Half a time, three and one half years, also called 1,260 days in verse 6. That's how we define that period because it's defined in verse 6 of the same chapter. So, he's going after the woman, but he can't get her. Whether he uses an army, whether he uses a natural flood like we see all over this planet at times where you get... Fifteen inches of rain and the cars are covered up to their windows. We don't know what that flood is. It could be an army that he unleashes against them. It could be a flood that tries to destroy them if they're at Petra. So he pours out this river out of his mouth... After the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. But the earth, verse 16, helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. When he couldn't get her, he went after her offspring, which is anybody that's saved. Doesn't live in the land of Israel. He's going after believers. Jewish and Gentiles around the world. And it says... He went off to make war with the rest of her offspring because we come out of Judaism, beloved. We know that. Even we call it the Judea Christian ethic. And I don't know if I said that right, but that's all right. He went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And Satan is a great deceiver. He, He does so many things to diminish the importance of the Word of God and add to the Word of God. And here, obviously, Antichrist and the false prophet look like the real deal. It looks like a real satanic trinity, and it's just a counterfeit. And people buy into that today. You know, the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan don't care how they get people. Do you know during the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, it says that there'll still be false prophets and false Christ's. Right between Matthew 24, 15, all the way down to verse 29, it says there's going to be false Christ and false prophets. He doesn't care if they follow Antichrist, he just wants to deceive them to follow anyone other than Christ. And that's what he does today. You know, Jesus is a small pathway, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes under the Father but by me. But a lot of religions today, and even some within the realm of Christendom want to believe there's other ways to God. Happy Joel's one of those. Do you know who I'm talking about when I'm talking about Happy Joel? Joel Olstein? He believes there's other ways to God other than Christ. Look at how popular he is. And you look at all the people that have been raised up that have their names on evangelistic campaigns and healing campaigns and their jets and their houses and all this. We have so many false Christ today and so many message. and pa- the pathway to Christ is this narrow walk that you do by yourself. You can't go down that road with anybody. You go down by yourself. But then there's a super freeway there like Los Angeles. Every other pathway leads down to everything else but Christ. And the world is deceived because narrow is the way, but broad is the path that leads to destruction, according to Matthew chapter 7. Christ is a very narrow way. People want to come, basically, today, our way by good works. So I'm just saying he's the deceiver. He's going to deceive by so many means, by his teaching, by the power signs and false wonders, and the world's going to have to make a choice during the tribulation, especially the great tribulation, who they're going to believe. Now, to get him to rise to power, he needs some help. And he signs a peace pact with Israel for that first three and a half years. Everything is sacrifice and offerings. The temple's been rebuilt. But he still needs some authority behind him to, get to have all the power he wants to be recognized religiously not just as a political world leader. So what's he going to do? He's going to have a religious system. So turn back. If you're not there, turn to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Again, these are not in your notes, so you can add them in if you want to talk about mystery Babylon. Put Revelation 17, 1 through 6, mystery Babylon. And I'm going to do the best I can to explain Mystery Babylon is a religious system, and chapter 18, Mystery Babylon is a commercial center of the world. And I think they're tied in because they're both a city. And the city that both is religious and both is affiliated with spreading wealth around the world. Some people have said, ah, Babylon, New York. No, I'm sorry. Babylon, New York, does not fit the bill for a religious system. And this is called Mystery Babylon. So let's read it. Uh, I think I'll read verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And in verse 15, the many waters are peoples, nations, kindreds, and tongues. So she has authority over a great part of the world. Not all of it, but a great part of it. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. That would be spiritual immorality. But certainly out of spiritual immorality and idolatry comes physical immorality. That's what we see today developing. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. They were intoxicated with her. We say, Ephesians 5, 18 says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Intoxication, here's an idea that they are just captivated, they're addicted to her, like alcohol would addict an individual to it. He carried me away in the spirit, verse 3, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Ah, here's the beast, scarlet beast, red, associated with bloodshed, and we'll see that later on. But so is this religious system. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, meaning slanderous against God, having seven heads and ten horns. I'm not going to get into seven heads very much because I'm just going to overwhelm you. Those heads are ancient empires. It says it later on in this chapter. She has control through history of this kind of a spread of this particular belief. That will be in the end times. But we, we don't realize it's crept down through to us through time. And there are ten horns. There's the ten horns again of Daniel chapter 7. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup, a golden cup full of abominations and unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, And the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with what? The blood of the saints. Probably referring to the time of the Old Testament. And with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, meaning the New Testament. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. You just go, wow. (laughs) Wow. You know, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a system that controls the Antichrist. She just controls him. She's riding on his back. And believe me, if he's going to declare himself to be God, does he want a religious system in control of him? Absolutely not. Daniel 11 makes it clear he's going to despise every god. He's going to be worshipped. He's going to have the god of fortresses. He's going to be the god of war himself. And that's how he's going to come to power. He's going to war with these ten nations. And he's going to wage war against the Lamb in this chapter. They are absolutely going to hate him. Or hate the religious system, I should say. Look at verse 15. He said to me, The waters which you saw where the woman sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast... These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. God's in control. For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the word of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is a great city, not a nation, just a city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Boy, could I get off on this. This is religious Babylon. This is mystery Babylon. People say, well, Babylon has to be rebuilt. No, Saddam Hussein tried that. And guess what? It's not rebuilt. He basically laid the foundation, put up some walls, and that was the end of that. God said in Jeremiah, he said it in Isaiah, he said that Babylon would never be rebuilt. It was destroyed in the Old Testament. So the word mystery means this Babylon was never revealed before. When you use the word mystery, you're talking about something that was previously a mystery, but now it's been revealed. This is a religious system. The religious system that deceives the world, that recognizes Antichrist, but Antichrist does not want to be under the authority of this woman riding on his back. So what is he going to do? We just read it. He's going to burn her with fire. These ten nations hate the religious system. And again, if you want to talk about the ten horns of Daniel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13 of this chapter, that ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, a short period of time. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. To understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand at least Daniel 2 and 7 and maybe 9 and 12. And some of 11. And and to understand uh, Daniel, you need to understand the book of Revelation. They kind of go together, but all prophetic books kind of go together. Beloved, you think about this religious system and you think about Jeremiah in the Old Testament talking about the queen of heaven. There was a queen of heaven. There was a mystery religion that came down in the Old Testament that was associated with Nimrod. And Simiramis, they were married, and in Nimrod, we know, was a hunter. And his son, Tammuz, was born to them, and he was killed. And, and I haven't read the two Babylons or looked at the book in a long time, but a man named Bishop his, Hislop made that book. If you don't have it in your library, and you have a prophetic library, you need to get it. I don't even have it. I just know of its contents. I've seen quotes from it. But what happened was this child that died was resurrected. And there became this cult that went down through the Old Testament, through all these empires associated with the Queen of Heaven and a mother-child relationship of worship. And you go, wow. That's why the Reformers believed, and I, and I can't help it. I, I think they're right to some degree. The Reformers believed that Rome was this false religion. See, the the church in early days was Catholic. It means universal. But then it became Roman Catholic under Constantine. And guess what you have? You have the rise of this woman and her son that is resurrected, but this woman is elevated. And we might be referring to the Queen of Heaven in the New Testament. And she's a co redemptress she never died. She was translated to heaven. She never died. You pray to her. The rosary is about her. This is the Virgin Mary and the Christ child, but it's displayed as a counterfeit in the Old Testament. It runs right through world empires. And the world empires are said to be those seven mountains. And the reasons the Reformers believe that Rome was essentially going to raise up this religious system that was in the Old Testament is because of a verse that says this, verse 9 of chapter 17. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And it describes those seven mountains, okay? And it describes the kings, five have fallen, one is, meaning Rome, and then so on it goes on. And I'm not going to get into detail in that, But this woman is associated with seven hills. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. That is both literal of the heads she dominated throughout time, but it's also literal that Rome has always been associated with seven hills. Seven hills of Rome. And the reformers looked at this, and they realized that when Peter was writing at the end of his life, he said, those in Babylon greet you. He didn't die in Babylon. He died in Rome, just like the Apostle Paul. So the reformers thought that this religious system was going to come out of the Roman Empire. And guess what? We have the Roman Catholic Church. And you'll say, well, Pastor Guy, you're condemning the Roman Catholic Church. I know they're believers. They're overcomers in the most wicked churches of the seven churches would represent Churches in San Diego, probably all seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, are right here. You got a church that teaches the Word of God. You might have a church that's very unloving and cold. They've left their first love, like the church at Ephesus. You have a church like Thyatira that allows a prophetess who is named Jezebel to prophesy and mislead God's people. Then you have a church which is suffering around the world, like Smyrna. The only two churches that are commended, Smyrna. And the church at Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love. All churches are represented right here, right now. And they probably are represented in the valley where I minister. But this one religious system who does have overcomers. I've heard men totally dedicated to Christ. And I don't want to mention their name because you might not like them. (laughs) They're newscasters. Some of them probably are Roman Catholic and they're religious. They trust in their church. They trust in their rosary. They trust in Mary being the mother of God. No, she's not the mother of God. God has no mother. (laughs) A co-redemptress? Christ died on the cross, not Mary. I'm just telling you, it's a false religious system, but are there people that truly get saved and live within that system? I've known of people teaching Bible studies in the Roman Catholic Church that if you listen to them, you'd be sure they're Christian. Why? Because they're overcomers in a bad church. And you say, you shouldn't be condemning the Roman Catholic Church. I better condemn it. It's a false religious system, and don't be taken in by it. And men have talked about it, and we preach it because we don't want people to be deceived. But so can Methodism. Methodists. You know, this is the mother of all harlots, right? So, you know what evangelicals have been talking about for the last 40 or 50 years? When I was a young believer in the early 70s, they said, we need to go back to Rome. We need to go back to our mother. All these false religious systems that have departed from Christ, which are denominations that have left Christ. They don't believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he rose from the dead. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They, they are just religion. Religion is a belief in a system. Christianity is a belief in a person. This is hard, beloved. Do I want to be negative? No, I don't want to be. And I know some Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ. But I know some lesbians who have come, uh, come to know Christ. I've known people that were involved in, you wouldn't believe it, bestiality. Couldn't talk to me, but were in the dark talking to me that they were involved in that as children. And you just shake your head. The most heinous things, God can save people. And so I I just want you to understand the passion that I have for this, but I, I want you to see that the Bible is real right now. It will be in the future being fulfilled, chapter 17, but it's real right now. This ushers in The final battle of mankind. Somewhere during that great tribulation, that last three and a half years, you'll have what is called the Battle of Armageddon. So let's move away from the Antichrist. The false prophets, Satan, empowering them, and the two witnesses, and then the false religious system. And let's move into the Battle of Armageddon. Turn to Revelation 16. Revelation 16. Verse 13 through 16. And I don't have time to explain this. If I did, we'd be here forever. So I'm just giving you the skeleton. And what you have with the skeleton is, you can study this, put the meat on the bones. That's what we do in Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine is about the skeleton of all Bible truth. And theology puts some more meat on Bible doctrine or just Bible teaching. Revelation 16, 13 through 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, that's imagery, right? But these are demonic spirits. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothing so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in the Hebrew is called Armageddon or Armageddon. It depends how you uh, pronounce it. But it has an H sound in the Greek. In your notes is Daniel 11. Verse 40 through 45. Let's talk about the Battle of Armageddon briefly. Let me read this to you. Now, remember, he's going to come out of Europe. His ten nations are coming out of Europe. And when it discusses him, it sounds like he's in the battle. It sounds like many of the kings of the earth, which we would call rulers, are in this battle. Now, whether they're sending their men into the battle and they're not there, I, I can't tell you. But this is the way it runs, okay? This is the end time. Daniel 11, 40 through 45. At the end time, the king of the south, that's Egypt, will collide with him, the Antichrist, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and horsemen with many ships. So the kings of the south align themselves with the kings of the north. Kings of the south would be Egypt, uh, maybe parts of Ethiopia for, for all we know. But then the kings of the north, according to Ezekiel, which could be a little bit different because it's a different time frame possibly. You're going to see the kings of the north being the extreme north, which would be Russia. Then you're going to see Turkey because the the places associated with Russia are mentioned in the word of God. And we know the origins of those places are associated with Turkey. Then you go to Iran. Ooh, interesting today, the days we're living in, right? Then you go to Libya and you go to the Sudan And you see these nations aligned in what we call the Northern Alliance. Well, they try and come up against Antichrist. See, his empire can't hold together in itself. But from outward sources, it's going to be destroyed no matter how you look at it. But basically, it's going to be destroyed by Christ himself. So what does it say here? It says, they come against him. With chariots and horsemen and many ships describing things that no first century man or Old Testament saint could describe except in ways that we understand it's mobile. Right? Chariots and horsemen, many ships. And he will enter into countries and overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, meaning Israel. He will not be there. He'll be coming from Europe. He'll be entering the beautiful land, the land of Israel. And it says, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of Ammon. He's going to rescue Jordan. God will not allow him to take Jordan. Jordan will be rescued. And Jordan, if you look at a map, under the Dead Sea is Edom. Right alongside the the Dead Sea is Moab and Ammon. And I I would have loved to have given you these maps. And Elisha might give them to you later. And I'll, 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 I'll discuss them during the millennium. But there's so many charts I could give that it would be ridiculous. Uh, you just couldn't, you couldn't have them all. There's so many in my file. My file on Revelation is like this. And, and I, it's just overwhelming. And I, all I'll do is give you knowledge and you'll just get confused. I'm probably good at doing that anyway. Uh, but it says, he will enter into the beautiful land, verse 41, and many countries will fall. But Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of Ammon will not. They'll be preserved. And he will stretch out his hand against those other countries. And the land of Egypt will not escape because they helped initiate the alliance between the kings of the north and themselves, the kings of the south, which is Egypt. So he's going he's to invade Egypt. But Egypt will not escape, and he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his footsteps, or, or, his heels. Okay, meaning he could either reach them and they'll be behind him in his conquest, and then he'll hear rumors. Or he's right; they're right at his feet, and he's ready to conquer them. He'll hear rumors from the east. The east has not been involved yet in the Battle of Armageddon. But remember, the Euphrates has dried up during the last three and a half years. And the kings of the east will pass through the river Euphrates and will invade the Middle East. So he's going to hear rumors. And he's going to have to go back and fight against the kings of the east. And also the kings of the north that probably had other reserved armies when they were defeated the first time. Which is true of Russia. They've had major defeats in their battle against, am I saying it right? Crimea? Ukraine, Ukraine, excuse me. Yeah, because I can get the two confused against Ukraine. He's had major losses, but he still has, in reserve, major armies that he can use. So this is the way it looks like it's going to be for the Antichrist in the end times when it comes to... uh, the, whether it be the north or the east. And it says, From the north will disturb him those rumors, and he will go th- with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many, and he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, and he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Wow. You say, this is amazing. Oh, boy. I'm, I'm getting close to running out of time. Uh, and Elisha said, don't worry, Dad. Dad. You don't have to worry about time, but I am concerned about time because I want to get as much of the millennium cover as I can because it's fascinating stuff. There's going to be tremendous carnage. That's all I'm going to say at this point. In Revelation 14, turn there, Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 19 through 20 is the carnage of the battle. And Christ orchestrates all this. The angels are carrying it out. So what does it say to an angel? In Revelation 14, 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. That is very significant that he calls it a winepress. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. You're talking about a valley called Jezreel or Megiddo. Where famous battles in the Bible were fought in the Old Testament. And you're talking about blood being up to a horse's bridle. And since I was on an Arabian horse ranch, and I worked for Toyota at the time, the blood, basically you're talking about it coming right up to here. Depending on what horse you're talking about. There's some that are very tall. Saddlebred horses are very tall, but most horses are going to be the blood's going to be right here. This is a big bowl, it's a valley like what I live in. Lake Isabella is a bowl, it's surrounded by mountains and we're high desert, and right in the middle is this valley. This is what it's talking about. What's interesting about this why did he call it a wine press? I studied topography, I looked at a map of topography, and I don't have it, but it's one of those charts again that I could have given you. And you know what? The Valley of Jezreel is 938 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,387 feet below sea level. A wine press is designed to where you trample out the wine and and it flows down so you get the juice down here. So the Valley of Jezreel is elevated and the Dead Sea is way down here and the blood is there in a bowl like a wine press And if you took, the logical conclusion is he describes it as a wine press because it's very high up here and very low down here. And it's just a comment I'm making because I like to study out this kind of stuff. Now, can I do this? Second coming of Christ. Turn to Zechariah. We know about Revelation 19. We're going to finish here in just a moment. But Zechariah chapter 14, and sometimes if I ever give a misreference, it's just because my mind is moving faster <laughs> than my mouth, or my mouth is moving faster than my, my, uh, my brain. But in Zechariah 14, we have a description of the second coming of Christ. And if you've never thought about using this to talk to a Jehovah's Witness who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God, It's an ideal passage. They don't expect you to use this. But Jesus Christ left the Mount of Olives, right? Acts chapter 2. His disciples watched him slowly go into heaven. And the two angels there on the Mount of Olives said that Jesus that you see going into heaven will return in like manner as you have seen him go. So you keep this in mind about Zechariah 14. What does it say? Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, the ones that have been predators will become the ones that Israel will be taking from instead of giving to. In other words, Israel will become the predator and those who are predators will be subject to Israel. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem, all those alliances, the kings of the south, kings of the north, kings of the east, and we're not even mentioned, but it makes sense The G7 is now the G9. What if NATO and its alliances are the ten nations? They're the west. They're formed out of the Roman Empire, in a sense, the revived Roman Empire of Daniel nine, twenty six and 27. When you you look at this passage, you realize what we're talking about here. All nations will come against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. Uh, It says very clearly in the last chapter that that a third of Judah has only survived. Only a third. They will help fight at Jerusalem. But half of Jerusalem will go into captivity. The houses will be plundered. Women will be raped. Ravished. Half of the city exiled, meaning it will be half under the control of Antichrist and half will be free. Uh, And when you look at this, it will really be all the nations that are fighting against it because they stopped turning against Antichrist to fight in Jerusalem because they're going to fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 17 14. So half the city's in exile, cut off, but the rest are not in exile. They're not cut off from the city. And the Lord, Yahweh, capital letters in your Bible, when it mentions the Lord with lowercase letters, capital L but lowercase, it's Adonai, okay? Or Elohim. Adonai basically would be associated with the Old and New Testament if you're having the Greek version of of the Bible, not the Hebrew version. Uh, The Lord, Yahweh, will... Go and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Yahweh's feet, the Lord Jesus Christ as Yahweh, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where he left, he's coming in like manner. I love to use this with Jehovah's Witnesses. They still try and say, oh, this is only talking about the representative of the Lord. It's not the Lord. Well, wait a minute. That's what the, well, the word of God has to be accurately translated, and it's not accurately translated. I just, you, I, I've talked to Jehovah's Witness one for two and a half hours one time. It was the most draining experience trying to prove to them that Jesus Christ is God. He's not just a created being. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, verse 3, as when he fights in the day of battle. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from the east to the west but a ver- by a very large valley. And half the mountains will move toward the north and the other toward the south. In other words, he's going to divide and make a place of safety for those that have survived in Jerusalem who are believers. They'll flee into that into that area that spreads from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, they'll flee into that valley. And he talks about that valley, says verse 5, and you will flee by the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, an Old Testament king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, Yahweh, will come and all his holy ones with him. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He's Yahweh. But he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, just, it's absolutely staggering. The baptismal formula baptizing the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. The great Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord, our God is one Lord. It it talks there about Him being one, and yet Elohim is in the plural. And he's three in one. Never had any trouble with this. But boy, religious people really have trouble with the Trinity. And, and some believers struggle with it too. I just never did have problems with it. But in the beginning, I, I can't say as I understood it. <laughs> in that day, verse 6, there'll be no light. All oh, Matthew 24, Joel chapter 2. Uh, Revelation 6, verses 12 through 13. There's not going to be any light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known uh, to the Lord, neither day or night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And you go, wow. Wow. The luminaries are going to put out, and they're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ coming back gradually the way the apostles watched him go gradually into heaven. In Acts chapter 2. And then the amazing thing that I'd love to talk about when we get into the millennium is verse 8. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as winter. These waters are flowing out from the Mount of Olives. They're flowing out, or I should say from the temple. The Mount of Olives is associated with the valley and the mountains preserving the people who have fled. This is the passage that refers to the living waters coming out of Jerusalem. We're going to get into this in the millennium. The living waters are in the scripture. Jesus said, if you had known who you were speaking to, the woman at the well, he said, I would have given you living water. Jesus Christ is a picture of the literal living waters that is talked about in Ezekiel and talked about in Zechariah right here. And also talked about in the new heavens and new earth. Beloved, there are so many pictures that have literal meaning in the word of God. Now at this point, we're going to stop right here.